What are you thinking about right now? Maybe it's work, or you're driving, or you're thinking about what you're going to make for dinner. But what is a child thinking about? Well, that can range from anything from dinosaurs to ice cream to dinosaurs made out of ice cream. When we see images and hear sounds, our brain will develop an emotion as a result of thinking about something. And, believe it or not, children are humans too. Therefore, their brains do a very similar process. And in fact, my brain right now is thinking that I need to introduce myself as Louis Colorotolo, a graduate student at the University of Guelph, trying my best to get a PhD in food science. And in the meantime, I like to talk to all different kinds of graduate students from all different kinds of fields about what they're doing and why it really matters. And this week, I'm talking with Adeze Eguatu, who is a researcher of children's brains. If there's anyone out there that can decipher the ramblings that's going in inside a child's head, it's going to be a Deze. So today she's going to talk to us about how when a child sees a social image versus an inanimate object image, their brain does something a little bit different, and how she can measure that in real time. And she's also going to explain why the heck we're paying money to research children's brains with little helmets with little stimuli things on them. Children's brains are growing and they are changing, so what she's doing tells us a lot about maybe how a child will grow up in the future. And although your brain stops growing around your late 20s and Azeze and my brain has stopped growing, we want to make it clear that sometimes our brains are mushy. So keep in mind that we are both graduate students and we don't know everything, which is why you're listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Adeze. How you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I am all right over here. Could you do us a favor and walk us through your educational history? Yes, no problem. So I hail from Florida. I was uh, raised in Tampa, Florida, and I went to school or undergrad um, at University of Florida um, in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, and go Gators for all you Gators out there. And <laughs> I did my Bachelor of Science in Psychology. I worked in a lab there. My research background there is I worked in a lab looking at uh, emotion and attention. It's called the center, the center of the study of emotion and attention, where I basically learned everything I needed to do for my project now inadvertently. And then after I was done with that, I did some time working in a college of medicine. I did a bunch of odd jobs. College of Medicine, working in the College of Medicine, doing research there. Um, also did uh, worked in the ICU at the hospital at, Uni at University of Florida. And then I decided I Wanted, didn't want to go to med school anymore. And then I traveled and did a post back at University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is how I got to UMass Amherst. And then I applied for the neuroscience and behavior program. And I got in there in uh, uh, 2014. And now I am in my final year. I'm about to dissertate and graduate, hopefully by the end of the summer. It sounds like you've been at it forever. Yes, I have been. I've been at for a while, and when they say that it's a marathon, not a sprint, they are not kidding. I have been on it the long run, and I'm ready to hit that finish line. So are you, like, at the, the point of the marathon where, like, your toenails are coming off and, and you can no longer feel pain? Uh, yeah, I'm at the point of no pain because anymore because all the toenails have gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, so that is some great imagery to start off today's episode. Yeah. <laughs> 
So you you work with I in my opinion the most difficult test subject that exists. Can you explain what you do? Yes. So the most difficult test subject as Lewis said I work with humans, specifically a specific type of human called the uh child. Um, so what I do in my research, I'm really interested in emotion and emotional development and cognitive development. And I basically have children come to my lab and look at emotional images. And then I basically record their brain activity when they do that. Yikes. So emotional images. Let's, uh, we, I mean, we got a lot to talk about. We got mm-hmm. a lot to talk about. But right off the bat, you explain that. I'm thinking like a TV show where they got the, the ink blots. And you have to like tell like the the therapist what the ink blot is. That's just that's what I'm picturing. Am I like really far off? You are. Yes, you are, but not quite <laughs> because that's not hard for you. It's not a lot of people do that. They do do that in a lot of adult stuff when they're looking at basic attention and emotion. But what I look at is I'm really interested in my research on how to get use these type of techniques to have or methods that are more friendly for children. So instead of doing an uh, ink blot, which is kind of like boring and you know not fun to look at, we use the medium of what children use the most, which is storybooks. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. So you give them a storybook, and, and really, what what do you care? What are you collecting? What's the point? What's the point? So basically, our point is we're interested in how children one process emotions. And um, we're really interested in how that relates if you can look at certain patterns of emotional um, reactivity <laughs> and seeing how what, how they pay attention to certain things. If we can make predictions about basically some problem behavior they might have or some skills they might have. So, for instance, you know, if a person uh, pays a lot attention to things that are reward uh related around reward you might that might be more associated with things like hyperactivity things like that so we're just basically looking at children looking at these pictures how their attention is captured by that and then we kind of make these uh look at these patterns and kind of make these predictions based off that um and i'm specifically really interested in my uh research is basically how do children distinguish between social and non-social imagery um, uh, we're doing this because not many people look at the difference between the two, because we know that emotions are important. And we also know that being able to process social things are important. Um, however, no one's really looked at what happens if you pay attention to one more than the other. Oh, very interesting. All right. So, uh, to clarify, like a social versus non-social image, would we be talking like a, okay, we're going storybook over here. So like a group of bunnies versus, you know, the one lonely bunny kind of situation. I'm more to the fact like saying, uh, singular, like a piece of a pie versus two children hugging each other or something like that. Oh, okay. So like very drastically on the like a social interaction versus just physical objects and stuff. physical objects yes we kind of wanted to start it off with that because we want it to be as distinct as possible because mm-hmm. sometimes when you start having these levels of whether it's one person two people all that stuff it becomes kind of hard to distinguish between the two so we just wanted to see like what does it look like when you have an objects versus people interacting we also have another category which is what you were saying, the lonely one, where we have this thing where people are always like faces, faces is a social thing, but 
when you when children are really looking at stuff and getting information, they're really interested, especially during that time, how are people interacting with each other? And they're also learning these skills about how to understand other people's emotions. So we also have a category where we look at that singular, like what does a person look like by themselves? And we're also interested in the difference between those social images as well. Now, here's the difficult thing is that I still feel at my age, I'm creeping into my 30s slowly, and I still have a tough time learning and processing emotions. Uh, yes. <laughs> what, so what, what is a child doing? So what is a child doing? So actually, when we talk about emotional processing and the research, we actually know that one reason to look at emotions in general is that that is one of the few processes where you have cognition, you're thinking, and you're like, uh, basically all these things that we do, behavior, those are one of the first things to come out first. You are reacting and uh, reacting to your environment once you're born. Like we always see that picture of the when people get born or a child is being born and they flip them over that old school one and they slap them to make them cry. See, that's an emotion. You're reacting to something in your stimulus, right? Now, where it gets kind of where we like kind of uh, evolve as we get older is as we get more experiences, we basically learn how to kind of process different emotions to kind of help us do certain behaviors. So we look at this information, we have a reaction, and then we learn how to regulate or control those emotions and then produce behaviors that are like similar to our goals. So for instance, say I go to someone, I'm talking to someone, and they say something that I find to be offensive or mean, right? And if you're in, in a situation where you're in a classroom or something like that, you can't just like, I might have this reaction where I just want to yell at them and hit them, right? Well, I can't do that in a classroom. That would get me in trouble. You have to do all this thinking. And then you have to like say, okay, well, now I have to use my words. I can't just yell at them. Or maybe let's say that didn't make me feel great. And you use these different types of words. So these are like skills that kids learn to do as they get older. And it really comes online when they start going to school. So what I'm really interested in is how does how do children get from this, I'm going to just see something and react to it, to I'm going to see something, notice that's important, and know that I need to then adjust my behavior accordingly. Yeah, and that honestly sounds like a really difficult skill to learn for such a developing brain. It is a difficult skill to learn, but we are pretty on par learning it because we uh, interact with people all the time, which is why I say something like social stuff is important because we are interacting with our parents. When we get, we're interacting with other children. When we go in the classroom, we're interacting with teachers. So over time, we really learn how to kind of modulate our emotions as we get older because we're getting into all these different types of environments that require us to do such a thing. So it's really important to understand how do children do that. And more so my research and what I'm interested in is what happens when children can't do that properly. And can you see that through looking at like the brain? Can you see that they're not pro processing things? Does that relate to certain types of behaviors? Why? What's the link between this brain thing or this brain signal we're looking at and this behavior and can we see hey is this something with them not processing something right or is that something else in the environment that is making that behavior come about right so this it, it seems like you you're really opening a pandora's box with this it seems like there's so many different issues to tackle when just thinking about well 
I guess, thinking. Exactly. There is a Pandora's box, and people don't even agree on what emotions are to begin oh, with. <laughs> so that's like a big thing. It's like, what is an emotion? Um, so basically, what I do is basically I can we have all these applications, but I want to go basically to the the bare bones. So I I'm really when we call about emotions, emotions it brings along all this big all these like structures that people just are constructs that people just don't agree on. So I'm just really interested on the hardcore what we call affect. So basically, how does a person designate something as positive or negative? And then also, what do they think the intensity of that is? So when they say valence, that's positive or negative. Do I find this as extremely positive, extremely negative? Do I find this as extremely high arousing or high intensity or low intensity? And then basically, I look at that level. And then I'm saying, okay, if we see at that level, when we look at the brain and they're reacting to it, what is showing the most back brain reactivity? Because then we can see what is capturing those attention the most. And then we just start on that level. And then as you go on, if you can look at that level and then you say, okay, well, let's do, we know this. So let's see what happens when we have them do a task where they have to regulate their behavior. Do you see changes in these little, these uh, brain signals as they're doing stuff? So you build on top of it over time. So my base question is like, what happens in baseline when we're just passively reacting to stuff? This tells us just basically the baseline of a person, how they're acting to stuff, and also, if we think about it, not everyone's going to react to the same thing because we are individual people. So that's also something you need to figure out. Go through the mess of all these different types of emotions, these quote-unquote individual differences. And can you see certain patterns that are associated with certain traits, such as is a person extroverted, is a person not extroverted? Are they going to respond to these? So we want to know what is a trait level difference or what's basically to personality or temperament. And then we also want to go on top of that, basically what's related to maybe problem behavior, if that makes sense. So we're looking at okay. like emotions on a spectrum, if that makes sense. Oh, okay. So so this, now that you started incorporating like sort of numbers to it, when mm -hmm. you said like we could look at the intensity of the brain, that's when my brain started clicking a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, so then here's the question. You uh, Do you, you use some sort of MRI for the brain? How are you looking at the brain? Okay, yes. So the different techniques. So you can use it, look at MRI, and a lot of people do. And MRI basically is, for people who don't know what that is, it's basically this magnet that looks at uh, the, the basically components in the brain or chemical components, and it like basically makes a picture. And then on top of that, if you want to look at activity, you have this functional uh, magnetic or MRI, which basically uses that magnet and looks at changes in the blood flow and oxygen levels to see what parts of the brain are taking the most energy. So that's where you know where these processes are happening. I don't really look at imaging. I'm more interested in, in more direct measures of brain activity. So I use this thing called EEG, which is basically called an electroencephalogram. It's basically an electric brain picture, kind of. So everyone knows what an EKG is, those things that they put, the stickers they put on top of your heart and stuff to look at your heart muscles and the electricity for that. Basically, I'm, I use that for the head. So I put these sensors on the head that record brain activity or electrical signals coming from the cells of your brain, and it picks it up. And basically, it's looking at like global changes in brain activity. Because as your brain starts to do things, especially it start, they start to talk to each other, 
and then more cells start to talk to each other. So this makes this like overall gradient or overall gradient that you can see the changes in electricity start like becoming what we call a potential. So it's getting higher or lower. And that's the way we do. It also phases as well. They like talk to each other. So sometimes they don't, but like their, their uh, electricity or their talking will phase. They'll like synchronize, they'll desynchronize. So we are able to kind of like break up what is happening in the brain when it's happening by using these electrical signals. So one big thing I want to say that is a difference between MRI or fMRI and EEG is that EEG tells you when something's happening, but it's not really good at telling you what, where it's happening because our brain is very thick, it's folded, and it's hard to, you just can't go that deep into the brain with this. So we get everything that's happening at the top of the brain. fMRI is really good at things like where is something happening, but it's not great at when something's happening because it's an indirect measure of brain activity because it's looking at things like blood flow and changes in oxygen levels. So you're kind of getting like that. You're just like one step behind everything else <laughs> with the fMRI. So the reason I use EEG for emotions because emotions are extremely quick. That's like the thing about them. They ebb and flow. They go very quickly um, and they're constantly changing when you're looking at stuff and they have many different phases of like you have to attend to something, you're evaluating it. There's all these different processes we do when we are processing emotions. So we like to use EEG because you can see those quick changes happening at the brain level where fMRI you can't really capture that. So you can mm. say, oh, these things are involved, but I can't tell you which stage of the emotional process this brain this brain structure is involved, if that makes sense. All right. So you're you're looking at it. You got the live feed to the brain. You you can't really see exactly where, but you know when you're getting big pings and when you're getting kind of like lulls in the signal. Exactly. Exactly. So and we can use that to compare different conditions or different when we show different things, because then you can start to see, okay, well, when we show this, we see this amount of activity, when we show that we see less activity. And then we can do that over many trials, many times, and then over many people. And then we kind of take that information and kind of pull out those patterns. And then you start to figure out these group level differences or these like condition-based differences, like whether it's social or non-social, um, is a person introverted or not introverted? Like you can start asking these questions, like what kind of patterns are we pulling out from these uh, brain signals when we're looking at, when they're looking at these pictures? All right, so you're you're really getting fundamental, you know, work done here. This is stuff that somebody really hasn't done before. Uh, my in chil in children it hasn't been yes. done in children before. So then, do you know what? Uh, I mean, I'm not that you're trying to sell your research or anything, but like, how does this get implemented? Like, why do we care that you're doing this? So, good question. Um, so one reason we should care is, especially when we talk about mental health, I know, especially with the pandemic, everyone's always talking about mental health um, and what contributes to mental health, what helps mental health, like how can we like, you know, focus on our mental health um, and different types of clinical disorders. And that's always been the, 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 the question. It's like, how do we predict when mental health is gonna happen? Who do we predict will be mentally ill? How do we um, then treat mental illness early enough and uh, all these other factors that come into it. And to be quite frank, the problem right now is that a lot of mental illness 
starts to come during stress, stress periods very late. A lot of them, a lot of the times people aren't seeking treatment early enough or we're not getting the right treatment early enough because people don't know what's going on. And we just don't have a really good way of diagnosing people very well because we just don't know what is causing mental illness, <laughs> you know, right? So one thing we know about mental, a lot of mental disorders is that a key, they call it deficit or a key dis problem that people have is emotional disturbances. So depression, you have issues with emotion. Anxiety is it very has a very emotional component. Um, ADHD has an emotional component. They all have this thing called emotional dysregulation. They have a hard time regulating their emotions in certain contexts. And we know that this is the core in many um, disorders, schizophrenia, all this stuff. However, these disorders are all different, and they have their own different they're different factors and they're, they just get expressed differently. So then the thing is, okay, so we know that everything, all these, all these disorders show some kind of emotional component, how maybe it's emotion is where we start, we can kind of start seeing these signs of these disorders before they even happen. So maybe we can understand different types of patterns and this emotional disturbances in childhood before they get diagnosed, then maybe you can use this to basically understand one, what the problem is, and two, um, how to implement certain types of interventions or treatments to kind of attack that so they won't have this long, like long suffering later on. Because as you get older, it's really hard to really kind of put a treatment and kind of change behavior and stuff like that. But as children, when we're younger, we can kind of like make a structure that can kind of work and that they can adhere to because you have your parents and all that stuff, you, you know, you're just learning to be you. <laughs> So it's like, you know, it's just not, it's just, it's just like a good time to kind of use, of kind of uh, try to do these treatments and try to basically, you know, attack any, any sign or try to detect any sign of mental illness at the point. But we're not good at it yet. And that's why you'll see a lot of people just really in focus on the brain because the brain is honestly where this is happening. However, we just don't know so much about, we just don't know enough about the brain and how it does things like process emotions, we can't even agree on what an emotion is across all the fields. So it's just like how we have to really do this groundwork on figuring out like what are emotions, like where does, how do they look like? Do we see certain emotion patterns come in certain types of people or are there certain attributes that are associated with certain types of behaviors? Um, maybe a behavior or maybe uh, disorders might show similar types of um of brain signals, but their behaviors are different or expressed differently, and why is that? Or you might have different brain signals or different brain signatures being shown in children, but the behaviors they're showing are the same. The the way that you put it there, that makes honestly so much sense as to why this is important. You know, I, I started this conversation and I was like, okay, she studies emotion in children. Okay, yeah, whatever, who cares? Uh, but but now that you put it in the in the the, the context of uh, being able to understand how a mental uh, uh, illness, I guess, um, sort of like evolves through time and how we can sort of like predict it. That seems ridiculously important. It and, is. And, and you said like learning emotions you do when you're you're young and you can change your behaviors. And the first thing I thought about was like, oh, they always say if you're young, it's it's best to learn a language when you're a kid, a second language. So I'm thinking like, oh, it's it's like the best way to learn how to like treat yourself with kindness if you have like a mental illness is to learn how to do it as a kid. 
Exactly. And um, also, your brain is also, we all know, it, well, not everyone knows, but it develops, it takes a long time to fully develop. So it's developing up until you're 25. So this is also a time where, you know, where we call it super plastic, it's super flexible. So this is great because you can do things like learn languages and all these other things. There's like childhood is a time where you can learn all these crazy things and your brain's just capable of so many things. But it's also the time where it can be most vulnerable to if things like environmental things, like we talk about things like a poverty and all these other like distal or like environmental factors can affect it and they can have bad uh, detriments as well. So, um, to your emotional health or emotional development. So we kind of were like, okay, childhood is the time to really know and like look at, it's a perfect time to look at when things like this can evolve or develop or, you know, or when they're triggered, but we don't have good ways to look at it because people don't like to look at kids because kids are hard to look at. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's basically the exact question I was, I was going to ask us. If this is as ridiculously important as you make it sound like it is, why are you like among the first people to do it? I don't think it, I don't think it happens because people are just like, I don't want to look at kids. I think that people have this idea of like, let's talk about emotions and we know emotions develop and are more stable when you're an adult. And so you develop these kind of things looking at adulthood, but then people are just like, wait, so we know this develops over time. How does that look over time? Short answer to your question is basically the amount of time and money to do a study that looks at people, a same person for over 20 years takes forever. Yeah. There's people who do it. There are people who do it, but it's, it's, it's a long haul and you're looking at the, you have to, it's a lot of work. You have to get the same people and you have to figure out how to be able to contact with them until they're adults. And that is like the best types of studies. We call them longitudinal studies because they happen at multiple points in time. And you're looking and tracking these people over multiple times of time, doing the same studies, also doing different types of studies and tasks because as the brain you develops, you start to develop more skills and then you have to find tasks that are age appropriate. You can't do the same task a baby does and then look at it when they're like 12 years old. It's not going to work. So it, it, it becomes really tricky to look at. The work is important. It just takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of funding. And we just haven't, we just don't have it right now. I mean, I think that research with this, with this whole idea about mental health and it being a brain disease, instead of just thinking about it as this is just something about like behavioral thing. And this is just something that happens when you grow older and like, we just don't know where that comes from. Uh, I think this idea that, yeah, we can kind of use these kind of factors and trace things from the brain and like, look at it. It's becoming more popular that people are trying to fund that. But, you know, you still have to figure out how do you, what's the right task to do it? What, you know, analysis, do we want to look at the molecular level? Do you want to look at the behavior level? Do you want to look at the electrophysiological level like I do? And how do we look at these different levels and how do we make information and talk to each other to figure out what these patterns mean? Because something that happens cell by cell is going to, how do you translate it to something to a behavior? These are the questions that, people in developmental uh, science or developmental neuroscience ask, but they're really hard to ask because it's a lot of work to do. Yeah, I mean, it honestly, <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work. That's very intimidating. The developmentalists, we're always going, you have to be, another thing about developmentalists and anything looking at development, you have to be okay with, your stuff is not going to be controlled. It's going to be so much variability and you have to be okay with it. 
So you have to be okay. That's that you're going to have to be collecting a lot of data for a long time before you are going to find anything that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, children, you really like, at least with like adult subjects, you can sort of adhere to something or um, I mean, I think about like uh, nutritional studies where they're like, all right, you have to have olive oil every single day. You can kind of get a, a, a an adult to sort of control things a little bit more. But kids, they, they got to be a wild card. They are a wild card. So you have to like childify your task. You become very creative. You make mm-hmm. things into games. And because their childhood is one is a time where people they just really love motivation and they really love getting stuff. Um, it's that they are very reward motivated. So they like to do things that where they can like have a game and they can build to it. And you have to make it very interesting like that. Um, you also, which is also hard too, because you that there's the fact that if you're looking at emotion, are you amping up? them too much so you always have to have that balance as well but you know that the only way the kid's going to be able to look at 200 pitches if you have them have a goal that they're building up to um even with like uh being able to still eg is very motion sensitive so they have to be very still so like too much shaking can mess up the, the sensors the sensors will start like not reading the information very well so then it's like how do you get a kid to stay still i always say like when I put a kid, it's like you have to stay still as a statue because the, the the cap is working really hard to read. It's magical, but it's not too magical because it reads everything and it can't figure out what is what. So you have to stay still. So let's stay still as a statue. So when I say, when I say we're about to start, like let's stay still as a statue. And then I'm like sitting there with a kid doing a um, game, a staring game and like freezing game and see who can stay there the longest. And then I always fake, of course, and move because they, they have to win, of course. Of course. <laughs> so you, you have, have to, to let them win. But then they learn, okay, you know, like, I want to get the best data. I want to get the best thing. I don't want to lose this freezing game. So then they're like, I'm in. I'm going to stay still anytime this lady says freeze, you know. <laughs> I'm going to pay attention. So you have to be really engaging uh, to a kid. Not not be, like, dumbify things or stuff like be like, oh, my God, you're a kid. You just, like tell them straight up like this is what we're doing and like this is why i'm doing it and kids are really receptive to that yeah yeah you don't have to dumb it down so much so yeah they pick up on that really quick it, it annoys them like sometimes i'm like working with six seven year olds and they're just like okay you can stop <laughs> 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 so they're just like i'm not three years old it's like you're insulting me <laughs> So it's like I've just been my normal self and I just basically try to make it a game and, you know, and they love to help too. And it's really interesting also when they're doing these tasks I have them do, just here's a picture and tell me like how it made you feel. And they like look at these like um, emoticon because it's like, you know, digital age. So let's look at these emoticon and they can say from happy to unhappy and they have like put these faces and then they t- use I use these thermometers for them to to pick what intensity is because the th- people could, the kids can understand a thermometer like they know that you know the temperature goes up that means it's like hotter so they can pick that and um, sometimes I'll they'll tell me like why they pick something and it's really interesting to listen to about when they re- say that because sometimes you can actually see this like cognitive processing going on and as they get older they become more eloquent like. I like if there's something neutral like a, a couch they'll say I like this couch and they're like the reason I like this couch it reminds me of my mom 
So then that also like brings this thing about how emotions have to do with a lot with association. So this idea that emotions are feedback, they like give us, uh, we associate emotions. We have these signals that are because we associate them with past experiences and we, they kind of make us understand what we're feeling. It becomes, there's some meaning to it. And that is a big skill that we also do as we get older that I was like, okay, that's a big thing. Like to be able to like be self-aware and cognitively aware about what your emotion is and why you feel that way is a huge skill. And I noticed that my older kids can do it, but my younger kids don't. They are just like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know why I felt that way. I just <laughs> like it. So it's interesting that you can actually see when you're talking to the kids, the emotional development happening as I'm doing these studies. It's really cool. Yeah. And that that's the developing brain, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. And uh, some of them it's like, well, oh, like they'll say something like, this reminds me of this and you have to be nice to people. I'm like, where did you learn that? I learned it in school. Oh. I learned it in this and stuff like that. So they're having experiences in their environment and they're bringing it to a situation that is just a, a still image of some kid holding each other, or some kid sharing. And they're taking that information that they've learned and then basically making a, um, a, a, a thought about it or some kind of interpretation about how they feel based on that. And that is extremely complex and kids can do that. And people think that kids are just, oh, they don't know what's going on. No, the kids are really emotionally aware. <laughs> and it's yeah. it's really interesting. Even when they're not aware, they know something's wrong and they'll like tell you about it. And it's like really interesting to watch because I'm like, I know adults who are not good at this at all. Like we kind of yeah. lose it, we lose <laughs> it. <laughs> and it's really interesting to watch and hear them uh talk about their emotions and why they do stuff and it's like wow this is really cool to look at and you think that this is something you take for granted but it is really a complex multifaceted thing we do every day yeah so okay then i got a question and this is you know not you don't study this but we're gonna see what your opinion is on it uh do you believe because you studied the difference between the social image and the non-social images and how that uh, changes their brains a little bit. Do you believe with kids having to stay home a lot due to the, the pandemic and not being able to go to schools like they used to, do you think that that's going to have some big long-term effects on these kids? That's a good question. There's actually, I don't study this directly there, but there is some stuff in my lab that looks at that, about the, the effects of... Um, iPads and because you're having an interaction, but it's not physical and you're not like, and sometimes you're having an interaction, but you're not really seeing everybody's body language. Everything's so constructed, right? <laughs> and, and there, yeah. and it's just like, you're not having that, that usual where you're getting this whole view of like someone's body language, which is also language as well. Like it's actually important information as well. Um, and uh, so the thought is, stay tuned but there are some people who do think that this could affect the way things like uh perspective taking fear of mind being able to understand another person's uh thought process or emotional process when they're thinking or make predictions about it um because emotion emotions and emotional processing is just so experiential dependent you need to have experience with another person or another thing to do that on the other hand the non-social part of being able to recognize objects or even just dealing with things that involve yourself 
are going to be super, super like amped up. Are you going to learn that? Hey, and this become become a problem. And uh, one of the things I look at my research is what happens when someone cares more about rewarding objects versus um, things like smiles or other people's emotions. Could that be a problem? We talk about things like callous and emotional traits, psychopaths. We see this type of emotional um, pattern in people who have psychopathic tendencies um, and stuff like that. They just don't pay attention to other people's stuff. They don't find it rewarding. So they're more motivated by things that are related to them. And they're able to process emotions fine, but they just don't have that emotional intensity arousal that they get. So they do not like code it as being part of information and how that can, even though it seems something so so fundamental, it's like, okay, whatever, but that can cause problematic behavior as you go on because if you're not motivated by that or if you're not deterred by hurting somebody or things like that, those emotional things that are really important to giving you information of what to do, what not to do, then you start showing what we call these uh, atypical or a, not n not normal behavior. Actually, the thing about antisocial, people always say antisocial as in being shy, but antisocial actually means to do things outside of social norms. So antisocial actually means you're being you're doing something that is harmful to another person. That's like a thing that people always say all the time. And as a person who studies this, I'm always like, oh, you're saying that you're psychopath and you're saying you're antisocial. <laughs> <laughs> so like, don't don't say antisocial around don't developmental say, neurologists. I, I know, right? It's 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 asocial to be shy. That means like lack of like you're not. But antisocial means to be antisocial. Like you are not regarding people's social social norms or others, uh, the well being of others. Um, so. This can be a problem, and this is where research I do like this, where we're looking at the fundamentals of like, hey, you know, we have people who are acting out, but there's some people who are acting out because they're just not paying attention to certain information or not coding it as this is something that's motivated and relevant, and there could be quote unquote psychopathic or callous and unemotional, but then you have other people who might be overly emotional. And they're just so overwhelmed that they just like freak out, you know, <laughs> or they feel like, or so they're interpreting cues that they're saying the wrong way, or may, they might see something ambiguous and they think, oh, they're being mean to me and they freak out and it makes them so upset. And they're, they're also like hitting somebody or doing something like breaking things or like, you know, showing some weird conduct dis disorder issues. That's a thing where, that's an example of where it's like, okay, like, let's look at this like fundamental stuff because those are two things that are happening and the behavior looks the same, but those are two possible mechanisms in the brain that are different. And the thing that's producing that behavior is not the same thing. Yeah. And, and that seems like you're, you're kind of building a, a handbook uh, to some degree of like all the things that might contribute to how a person behaves in the future. Exactly. I wouldn't say I'm doing a handbook. I'm just writing a chapter. Okay. All right. All right. You're writing a chapter. <laughs> I'm writing the first a chapter. chapter. You're you're yeah. writing like the, the the intro chapter right now. Yeah. So it's like there's a lot of people who have a lot of other chapters, but I feel like a lot of people have like missed that intro chapter, like attention, evaluation, these things that we don't think is emotional yeah. are emotional, and we can't have emotion without them. So let's not forget about things like attention and all these cognitive things that people don't think are emotions. And I think that's, I'm like, I argue that emotions can't be what they are without cognition and they can't be what they are without having some kind of thing like thinking or attention as well. We just become better at it over time. 
Okay. Well, you know what? It sounds like you, you wrapped it up there. You you put a, a beautiful bow on the end of it. Like, inadvertently. You didn't even have to be told to sum it all up. You did a great job. Uh, I did the best I can because I know this is... Thank you. I know this is a really, like, complex topic, and I could go, like, hours and hours about this. So it's just like, how do you talk about the basic things without getting into the nitty-gritty? Which is really hard. <laughs> yeah, but, that know, is really hard. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. So I'm like... Let's like talk about this without getting into the nitty gritty because I don't even think I mentioned a brain area once. Oh God! Oh, 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 oh no! It looks like oh we're out of time. Oh, oh I know. And I wanted to talk about brain area so badly. I know. No, this was my goal. It's like how could I talk about this without having a brain area? And I think that I think that we had a good conversation, and my goal was achieved. I think you did great. I didn't have to learn about a brain area, and honestly, I'm just gonna turn my brain off for the next hour. So I'm going to cool down. It's snowing over here right now, so I don't know what the weather is, but it's a nice time to to watch some Netflix. Like, bring it. Yeah, it's a good time to like eat dinner. It's like that that time to relax. You know, recharge because we also need to have a recharge brain to regulate our emotions and our behavior. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those cognitive resources to be able to process them. So, yeah. There you go. There you go. There there you go. Okay, everyone, turn off your brains. (laughs) Okay, so thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It really was such a pleasure talking. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This was a blast. And just like that, your brain has developed so many emotions from listening to this episode. I can only hope that they're positive emotions, but if they're not, I don't know, come fight me. Either way, Adesa has given us all kinds of information about what emotional processing is in a child. And as I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, our brains can be kind of mushy. Therefore, we have to once in a while admit that we don't know all the stuff, which is why the show is called We Know Some Stuff. So it's time to do a quick fact check. In the middle of the episode, Adeze said something that might need a little bit of re-clarification. She made a comment that she was the first person to look at the differences in social and non-social emotional processing in children. Now, uh, it's not incorrect, but it's not exactly true. See, there's a considerable size of work examining these differences in adults. But work focusing on children population is definitely limited. So developmental studies tend to focus more on the traditional differences, you know, positive and negative. Whereas child studies specifically looking at social and non-social distinctions and emotional processing are very scarce. And the ones that do tend to focus on clinical populations. So what is novel about what Adeze is doing is that she's trying to explore these social and non-social distinctions among typical developing children. We felt the need to clarify that because, believe it or not, behavioral scientists have feelings too. Thanks for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.